What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode, and it is a rare occasion where we have guests on the podcast. It's even rarer that we've never had a week, have we, Laurel, where we've had back-to-back guests. Have we done that before? No, this is really unusual for us and really exciting. It is super exciting because today we are joined with one of my new friends, someone that I met in the podcast community online. Um, Jeff, give us your introduction, my friend. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for all that. Uh, I am Jeff Lippman. I am the host of a number of podcasts, but the ones that are probably of interest to your audience would be Garden of Doom and its sister show, Garden Views. Uh, fear not. If you subscribe to Garden of Doom, you get Garden Views, whether you like it or not. And there's no way to find Garden Views individually. So um, why are there two? Just because there were some shows in Garden of Doom that that I felt were more, I'll just call them mainstream for, for uh, you know, more topical, more uh, current events policy based. So that's what Garden Views has sort of morphed into rather than interviews that were less in the esoteric realm. Um, but Garden of Doom, I think, explores a lot of the same concepts that you do though yours is really from a very different more focused lens uh certainly from a almost like an academic lens um mine i'm just exploring things that make me curious and trying to learn more that i'm too lazy to research but uh esoteric you know we will do frivolous anime dragons vampires land of the lost um uh, but we'll also, you know, talk about H.P. Lovecraft, mythology, um, theosophy, uh, you know, uh, Christianity, religion, theosophy, I don't know, a whole bunch, all sorts of things. And, you know, but a lot of arcane and occult and, and UFOlogy. And I could go on and on forever, but I shouldn't. And there will be just a little bit of overlap with our subject matter today. We had the pleasure of joining you on Garden of Doom recently to talk about Greek mythology. And that was a wonderful conversation where we got to dive deep and also give a really broad overview of a subject that really interests us. So thank you again for having us on the show. We'll point listeners to the show notes so they can check out other episodes and also the one that we just recently guested on. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to finally join forces on our side. Yeah, yeah, me too. That was a great show, and I really and your expertise was great. You also armed me very well because uh, one of my co-hosts on another group of networks and a different type of show is a Greek Australian, and he's about all things Greek. So we actually did a rare live Garden of Doom on 
on their feed uh, about all things Greek. And, and, I, and I think that I held my own, maybe even, you know, got a little bit of the better of him on the mythology side. He certainly had the history side. So uh, I held my own against Jimmy the Greek and largely thank, thanks to the two of you. Oh, wonderful. It's our pleasure. I mean, honestly, the credit must go to Laurel because her knowledge of Greek mythology just dwarfs mine. Pish, pish posh. Well, we I are going to be talking. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. The two of you are ridiculously smart. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's actually makes me very insecure. Oh, don't be <laughs> insecure. You are also a very smart person. For no other reason than you recognize our smartness. And I think that itself is a sign of intelligence. No, I'm kidding. Mutual Admiration Society is, is a club I'm happy to belong to. <laughs> Absolutely. So we are going to be talking about the movie The Witch. Very excited to talk about it. It is a movie that I think is very interesting. It's not one of those movies that you can just sort of mindlessly consume and go on. It's a movie that requires active participation for a whole host of reasons. And there's a lot of things that we're going to be able to dive into that are going to be adjacent to not only the Garden of Doom kind of uh, philosophy, but also the Midnight Myth philosophy. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Before I do my thing, which is really just telling you how much we would love to hear from you on social media and the web and so on and so forth. I have to say the last time that we got in uh, front of the microphones and talked deeply about witches and witchcraft, it happened to be the same week that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And we're recording this on Saturday, June 25th. As you know, yesterday, a uh, really devastating decision was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, striking down Roe versus Wade, a really landmark decision. So a lot of us are feeling very sad, very angry, very tired. Um, I know I am, and it is just a kind of delicious irony that we tend to be talking about witches and femininity and feminine power in weeks that the United States Supreme Court airs off the side of women's testimony and bodily autonomy. So um, all that is to say, we will be donating our Patreon proceeds from the next month to the National Network of Abortion Funds. We believe that abortion is healthcare and it is a human right and that no one should be forced to give birth. Um, so with that said at the top, keep fighting um, and keep in touch with us. If you want to say hi, we're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We would love if you had the time to leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you find your podcasts. It really means quite a lot to us. And you can support us on Patreon, which uh, at this time is going to the National Network of Abortion Funds. So we hope that you will join us either by logging onto our Patreon or my, making a contribution of your own. And uh, thank you for that. And before we do our quick recap, our briefest of brief recaps, the episode that we did about witches back in 2018 delved deep into the ancient mythological roots of witches. So this is going to be a really cool companion piece because we're going to talk about witches as we more commonly know them through the lens of this phenomenal movie, The Witch. That being stated, let us do our briefest of brief recaps, and I'm going to keep it extra brief because when we have a guest on, we want to make sure everybody has time. This is a movie about a puritanical family in a New England 
colony, uh, English colony in the 17th century, where the father gets excommunicated for, from the community for his religious beliefs. Now on the fringe of the society living in the wilderness, the family is struggling to meet the basic needs such as food and shelter and care. When one of the youngest member of the family, a baby disappears in the middle of a peekaboo game, strange things happening and the family comes to believe they're being tormented by a witch. The witch they end up thinking could be their oldest daughter, Thomasin, and this tears the family apart when we find there actually is a coven of witches that are terrorizing them. One by one, the family members succumb to the evil ways of the witch, leaving left the daughter, Thomasin, who ends up signing the devil's book to live deliciously and joins the coven with the family having been destroyed. Woo, That's the witch. The end. There's a lot of detail in there left out in the recap because we're going to talk about it. Now, usually we ask, does this movie hold up? But in our conversation leading up to this podcast, we let Jeff pick the movie that we would talk about. So instead of asking, does it hold up? Because we all know this is a good movie. Everybody pretty much who's seen it recognizes its quality. So instead of asking that, let's assume, yes, it holds up. Jeff, tell me, why did you want to talk about The Witch? I promise you and I promise the audience that when I picked this and when we scheduled this show, I did not know that we were moving ever closer to puritanical uh, colonial America. This is just uncanny timing, but I have to be honest with you, that sort of comes with me. That's sort of common in my world. That's not what you asked me, though. Why did I pick this? Uh, is because when I, I sort of went through a little binge where I was watching all these A24 uh, and Robert Edgar's directed movies. And I probably watched too many in too short a time span. Uh, but they seem to always be the theme is the center of whether it's madness or whether there's something from the some outside force driving it. And they sort of alternate which is which. And sometimes it's left to interpretation. There's also some themes of uh, sort of bleakness, dreariness, isolation, how isolation factors into that. Um, and there's oftentimes sort of a uh, nature versus modernity battle going on. And I think all of that is so encapsulated in this movie. And I tell you, after I watched it the first time, I wasn't sure if it was madness or if it was real. Um, I erred on the side of not not erred. I decided that it was real. Asked three people who actually, you know, are the ones who referred the movie to me. They have their own podcast. I asked them in one of their Q&A sessions and they gave me three different answers. Um, so I was happy to know that them as movie buffs, like, you know, artsy fartsy movie people, um, that they had three different answers. They didn't have an agreed thing. So I didn't feel dumb after that. Um, but I was unsatisfied. Uh, so I wanted to revisit this again. And I encountered you good folks who do this already. And I figured you could help me get to an answer, which drove me to watch the movie again. And I caught a lot more this time, uh, but I don't want to tease anything. We should go through things through your order, but uh, I'm very glad I did. But yeah, it was mo mostly the same thing as Garden Doom. I was curious. I didn't feel like doing the work myself. So I turned to people who were smarter than myself to educate me or validate my beliefs. That's a awesome. And I'm really glad that you picked it because we wanted to talk about this movie when it came out back in, it was 2018 when we first saw it. It came out. Yeah. In it came out in 2015, 2015. Yeah. Okay. We saw it in 2018. 
and we wanted to talk about it then, and we decided instead to just talk about the mythological roots of witches and patriarchy. So we've wanted to revisit it. I think you bring a, a pretty uh, cool tension in this movie. The first time I saw the movie, I interpreted it as literal, literal witches, literal Satan. That's the what's really happening. The second time I saw it, I really thought one of the themes I didn't pick up at first was starvation. These characters don't have enough food and they are struggling to feed themselves. And I wondered if there was room for interpretation that what's really destroying this family and driving it to madness is the lack of food. And so they turn on each other and sort of symbolically eat each other until the the strongest survives, which is Thomason, the young woman. And then when she joins the witches, it's more metaphorically, she's joining her power as having now conquered this family. And I don't really know if I've landed on an interpretation. Laura, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a great question. I think it's important to also look at the subtitle of this film. It's The Witch, A New England Folktale. Uh, the director, Robert Eggers, has talked about how he wanted to portray mythic old New England. He's from New England. And he wanted to present an archetypal New England horror story, a Puritan's nightmare, if you will. So the sources that he's pulling from are connected to journals, court cases, and folk and fairy tales. So I think it is interesting to pull apart whether the events of the movie are literally happening or this is a, a presentation of what one would have seen this history actually look like. But I also think it's interesting to look into how this is a vision, right? This is a vision of a Puritan's absolute nightmare. And in many ways provides a really interesting allegory for uh, Thomason's journey and for the journey of a woman through a patriarchal society. Uh, so I do think that's really interesting to think of it as a folktale, think of it as a fairy tale. Um, I love A24, Jeff, like they can have a direct line to my bank account. Anything that they put out, I'm going to see, I'm going to find like real uh, richness and power and really interesting voices. They are, I, I think, almost single-handedly like breathing new life into independent filmmaking. And they're giving like decent enough budgets to these up and coming auteur directors who have something to say, who have a vision and who are able to make their, in many cases, debut features like this one um, with a lot of creative control. And so I love this film as a like, as a first outing for this director who would go on to, you know, play with period, play with um, our relationships to the past. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I definitively think one thing or another, um, but I, I like to see this as symbolically Thomason's journey into her power, into her feminine power, as terrifying as that would be to this patriarchal community. Interesting interpretation. Let me make sure I'm, I'm following you there because it was a pretty big point. You're saying it really doesn't matter if they're literal witches or not. What matters is this character, Thomason, overcomes the patriarchal forces of this of this society, of the puritanical New England society. And their only way the puritanical society could view this is evil and as a nightmare. Right. Like, I don't think it doesn't matter if it's true or not. In the movie, there literally is a witch. There literally is the devil. And that's how Thomason escapes her patriarchal puritanical community. 
uh, in reality, in history, this was mass hysteria. This was mass violence against largely women and people of marginalized communities. And the um, relationship between mass hysteria, panic, and uh, religious panic and witchcraft cannot be understated. Interesting point. Jeff, anything to add? <laughs> um, well, as a middle-aged man, I, you know, I'm not immune to the, to the patriarchy terms, but, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see it through that lens. And after seeing this, I think the first time I saw it, like I was sort of at 50, 50, is this, is this in the head? Um, and not necessarily just so Thomason, but it could have been through Thomason, but, you know, could it be sort of what, 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 what you said, um, Derek, is that, you know, because of starvation and weakness and isolation, they all could be having their own fever dreams, which are different, but overlapping. And since they're parallel, they're sort of bumping into each other. But I did decide that it was literal, uh, but, but I'm not certain on that. Well, after rewatching it, I'm more curious about the cause. And I sort of, and, and this may actually, go, this may actually support Laurel's theory because I think the beginning, the beginning, which is, you know, rather ambiguous, why this very devout person got excommunicated, you know, banished, but they gave him a choice uh, from the plantation, which is not a plantation as we think of it, like a giant farm with, with slaves and whatever. Plantations were sort of like fortified communities um, back here. And I only learned that by watching like a TV show about the French Indian War, which I think, by the way, has the same actor in the main. Uh, and I hope it comes back because it was really good. Uh, but I can't remember the name. So excellent job. Um, Ralph Ineson or? No, no. Well, maybe. But I mean, the, the name of the actual show. Uh, oh, OK. Nice. Um, but um, he's at some point at an important point in the movie, and I don't want to get, tease, get ahead of ourselves, he's, he, and a few times he talks about his, his sin of pride. And I'm wondering if his sin of pride actually invited this or because his sin of pride, he dragged everyone with him to, you know, this nowheresville, you know, it probably, you know, he said it was a one day's ride to, to the town. So you got to figure it's probably a hundred miles or something like that uh, from there. Um, if he drove them to this place where they became uh, sort of fodder for the invitation of the witches, which was this sort of past, pasture land surrounded by the woods, but off the road, it, almost like an, a, a desert oasis for them. If, But I'm not sure if he caused that or the witch's power was always there, was always within Thomason, and that sort of drove that. So that's that's my biggest question now but i'm open to revisit the other questions because i'm you know i've gone from 5149 to you know 8218 that it was literal but that that 18 is a strong 18 that, that 18 they all know like ninjutsu i think this question is interesting about the father's role the role of the father's sin of pride in the downfall of the family because you have that scene where he's eating the dirt and being like i've brought you know this shame on my family i've brought my family to ruin and then we have the final confrontation between thomason and william the father where he is accusing her outright of being a witch which has been hap happening snowballing throughout the film all the members of the family are slowly turning on her and she's like 
uh, you're the one who messed with mom's cup and she got mad at me and she railed at me and called me a witch. You're the one who took Caleb out into the woods and that's why he got stolen away by the witch. And now you're turning this on me. You're the one who did all of the things, the actual actions that led to uh, what, what is happening to our family. You're the one who got us banished. Uh, why is this turning against me where he's the pillar of the family? He's the, the stronghold. He's the, uh, the patriarch she becomes the focal point of the anger and the misplaced blame because there is so much else happening emotionally between the uh, relationship dynamics of this family. You've got, um, you know, Catherine, the mother who is sexually jealous of her daughter. I, I was also trying to track like the seven deadly sins throughout here. You've got like envy with the mother and uh, she's envious of Thomason's youth. We have lust. Caleb is constantly lusting after his sister. We have pride in William. Um, I didn't quite track them all exactly, but I thought in addition to so much of the like biblical current that runs through this, there is also uh, all the members of this family present a different version of sin. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, I read the way I look at the beginning of the movie and the banishment of William and the family. I don't necessarily read it as the witch's magically kind of pulling them there. To me, I read it as the demarcation between the civilized and the rational and the uncivilized and the evil. And that's a tension that exists in a lot of narratives dating back to Greek and Babylonian myths. And it resonates through today where you have civilization, you have the taming of the wild, you have the rational you have control over how much you can eat, how much you can drink. You are safe. You are in society. Once you enter into the wild, you enter into the den where because there is no civilization, you have one foot in the rational world and one foot in the magical world. And his pride pushes them to this border. And once they get to this border between what's rational and not rational, they're the witches, whether they are artifacts of their subconscious gone mad through starvation, or whether they are literally magic users, they're able to go in and manipulate these sins that were already there in them. Pride, envy, lust, you name it. Yeah. In the trial, when William is is being uh, banished, he says the opening lines of the movie, what went we into this wilderness to find? And he starts talking about having come over from England and talks about just the new world, New England as the wilderness, pridefully assuming that if you banish him, you excommunicate him, he's outside of the walls of the village. He's on the edge of civilization and in this true wilderness that he will be able to still conquer it, that through faith and through prayer and through endlessly chopping wood, he will still be able to have dominion over this space. But in fact, this space is already inhabited by monstrous women. And as well as civilization being the order and the rational, it is also the patriarchal, especially right. Western civilization. Whereas in the unrational, in the magical, there you have the upending of the godly order where the women have more power over the men. Woo! To literally fly. I, I sort of almost felt for William because even though he was obviously a, a, as stubborn as any of his goats, he was also the one that was trying at, at all costs to rationalize everyone's behavior. He was, he was also the defender of Thomason, but he didn't want to betray his wife. 
Uh, he, he, you know, was trying to help with the kids and work with them. I mean, Caleb, yeah, sure. He liked looking at his sister's bus line, but what choices did he have? I, I you know, I, I think he was just a confused boy hitting puberty, but I never really got, you know, that that was a big issue. Like Caleb was the only purely good one. And, and sort of, I don't think, I don't think there were any accidents in this movie. I mean, do you know what Caleb means? I do not know what Caleb means. Okay, well, Caleb actually has two meanings, and and they're from the same word. And but the meaning, the way it's spelled, is loyalty. So it means loyalty. And Caleb was in, indeed loyal. Loyal. He was loyal to everyone. He was loyal to his dad. He was loyal to his sister. He was loyal to everyone. But Caleb also, the word Caleb actually comes from dog, which is also the loyal animal. Um, so Caleb was also trying to be the protector. He just wasn't very good at it, just like the dog wasn't. But None of them had a chance because they were outgunned by the wilderness, the wild, the Gaia, you know, you know, expressing dominion over her domain, um, you know, sort of the sacred feminine, you know, however you want to look at it. But William tried. He just he just he just didn't know how to do anything exactly right because he thought his it was either his way or the highway. But society rejected him for better or worse. We don't know. I mean if Puritans are throwing you out and he's saying he's trying to, to, you know, preach the gospel, is he doing something more puritanical or is he trying to be like the old, is he like more agnostic? I didn't get the feel that he was more gnostical and a more liberal approach, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, like Catharism or a scene. I, I, I got it. I, I got the feeling that he was definitely more puritanical. He was yeah. line for them. Yeah, the assumption is that he's much more of a separatist. He's much more of an extreme Puritan where they're just like regular extreme Puritans. No, I think that's a good point, too, because you feel for all of these characters at some point. And you do see through many of the sequences that there is great love between the members of this family, even though there's also like lots of misery that they cause each other. Most of that brought on by their pretty miserable circumstances. So I do feel for these characters. I feel for William. I feel for Catherine a lot. I feel for sweet, sweet Caleb. And if we're talking about the significance of the names too, if Caleb is loyalty, then Thomason is named for Thomas. She's doubt, right? So there is uh, a really interesting tension there. Robert Eggers talks about having um, cast Anya Taylor-Joy and this was her breakout performance. Now she's a superstar A-lister, but she was unknown at this point. And he saw like, dozens of extraordinary young women in this role and immediately was like this this is absolutely thomason and part of it was that she looked like she could not be a puritan like this character looked like she was just trying to burst out of this rigid society which i think is is a really interesting recalibration of what that character was supposed to be when he envisioned it um, but at the same time, she's angelic, right? She looks like this perfect, innocent child who has never done anything wrong in her life. And she's praying and saying, I've, I've done all of these wrong things. Um, and eventually she accepts the moniker that's been put on her. It's almost as though there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that says, if everyone is going to call me a witch, if everyone is going to say I'm the witch of the wood and that I have this power and that I can control people, and then that power is actually presented to me. How about I go ahead and live deliciously and enjoy the taste of butter? So I I think it's a feminist film. Um, yeah, yeah, I I love that, and that goes into to me the idea of constructs and the idea of ourselves linked to constructs that are given to us 
So there's a construct called a plantation. There's a construct called the wilderness. There's a construct called a man and a woman and a family and a daughter. And when you have, when you are the, the patriarch, when you are the God of your individual household and everybody is saying, hey, the construct of daughter doesn't apply here. The construct of witch applies here. There's only so much people can push back against that until they adopt it. There's only so much someone can fight being called a thing until you internalize it and become it. I'm thinking of totally off topic. I'm thinking of a line from Game of Thrones when Jon Snow says to Tyrion Lannister, what do you know about being a bastard? And Tyrion, because Tyrion tells him, wear it like a badge of honor and it can never be used against you. He's like, what do you know? That's a good parallel. And Tyrion says, well, you know, all dwarfs are bastards in the eyes of their fathers. And but the idea being, hey, if the world will push this construct on you, wear it proudly. And that is the best way to defend yourself against it instead of trying to fight it. In many ways, Thomason's journey is one where she has no choice but to become the very thing the family is accusing her of. And yes, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways, but it's also fulfilling the role that has been pushed on her throughout all of the events of the film. You're the witch, you're the witch, you're the witch. Eventually you got to say, F it. All right. Where's the book? Let me sign. I'm going to drink some blood and fly now. Yeah. Let me just bathe in the blood of unbaptized babes. Uh, yeah. The thing but that was dead then. So like right. the choice that she has, she, I'm, I'm not sure if it was always her because there was a time when it could have been the twins. There was a time when it could have been any of them. And I, I'm just not sure when the evil seeped in, but I don't think there are any accidents in this movie. And I want to get these two th- thoughts out before I forget them, because I will, because I'm old. Um, but one, apples were a big part of it. And then yes. when Caleb was, you know, on his deathbed, they they extracted a, a rotten apple from us. So apple, Eve, fall of grace, which supports Absolutely. Again, the, the feminists and sort of the bad rap women get, you know, basically in the Bible, but not just the Bible, but related texts, but let's just stick with the Bible for now. Um, the other thing is the, the one thing they had of ma- major value aside from each other was this silver chalice, that, which was Catherine's, which William got rid of to, to sell to, I guess, to, to get the animals for the farm to pay for it. Well, aside from it also being Catherine's property and the man stealing it for what he thought was good reasons, but not necessarily, um, it's a chalice, so you've got the holy growl thing, but it's also silver. And what do we associate with silver? Silver being a weakness, something that can deter or protect against preternatural, supernatural beings, such as a witch. So he had to get rid of the one thing that probably could have protected them. Not the cross, not their piety, not anything else. The silver, the actual part of the something found in the earth that could, that could protect them. That's really good. It's also 30 pieces of silver. It's a betrayal of his family, a betrayal of his wife. Uh, that's that's good, though, the the protective element of it. I, I really like that. Um, nice. Also, in puritanical society, having a thing like a silver chalice and being proud of it would be deemed a, a sin. Right. It would be, yeah, it would be deemed as something like, hey, no, you everything needs to be as simple Everything needs to be as minimal. You have to have as little sin in your life as possible in order for you to commune with and be one with God and ascend to heaven when you die. There's so the, chal- the chalice also represents some semblance of wealth 
and some semblance of pride and pride for the mother. So what does the father do? He steals it from her and then sells it for money. Gluttony. And hence, That's hence one the of the seven sins that, uh, that I think we didn't have before. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. So I, I 100% love that. The apples is such a powerful symbol. Fruit itself is a powerful symbol. It's used in myth all over. It's uh, used to represent the growth of life. It's used to represent uh, rebirth. It can also be used to trap people. Think of Persephone, who eats the pomegranate seeds and gets trapped in Hades or in the dominion of Hades. In this instance, I think it is very clear they have been cast out of society. They have been cast out of this symbolic Eden, the plantation. And what does he cough up? He coughs up the apple, the symbol of the forbidden fruit that you're not supposed to eat. What is his sin, if any? Maybe a little bit of lust because he's yeah. a, he's about to become a teenager and hit puberty. And he coughs up the forbidden fruit after, if I remember correctly too, when he first encounters the witch, she kind of seduces him. Yeah, uh, that child actor actually had his first kiss on that set with that Victoria's Secret model who plays the young version of the witch. That's going to change his life. Who, who amongst us wouldn't have been tempted by that? And then, <laughs> But secondly, if you recall, when dad and Caleb first went out and they were going to hunt because dad sort of knew that the rot was on, that they weren't going to grow anything and they wanted to hunt. And, and of course, even the the you know, that rabbit, which was, you know, obviously, you know, the, the witch, witch. Yeah. she was doing all sorts of skin walking rabbit, the, the dog, uh, you know, other, other things, uh, maybe the twins at times, who knows, but, um, and his, he, she even made it so that his gun backfired in his own eye. But when mom was mad at them for leaving, because the baby Sam had been taken, you know, presumably by a wolf, that was dad, one of dad's lies. It was taken by wolf to protect Thomason but there was no other explanation. I, I, you know, the other explanation is more horrible. Um, and he part, and he couldn't possibly want to admit that they were in, uh, you know, the realm of Satan because Mr. Pius took them there. But um, the, when Caleb went to protect his father, loyal Caleb, he said, Oh, dad wanted to surprise you because I saw an apple tree and we were going to go get apples for you. And he didn't want to ruin the surprise. And which seemed like a very lovely thing to say, but then the apple came back to bite him. Ooh. Ooh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Awesome. Um, so tons of stuff to mine from this movie. I feel like we are only really scratching the surface of all of the layers that you can kind of untangle this movie. And I think to your original question, Jeff, you know, was this literal symbolic madness? I always find in the horror genre, the most fun way to interpret it, maybe not always the correct way, is to be super literal. Yeah, for me, it, it, for me too. It's accepting that the events of the movie are not deceiving me necessarily. These are literally the events that happen in the movie, but the message that I take from that can take any form, right? Can can extrude that into the allegory that it represents while it still is a folktale. Absolutely. And there's no, it's a beautiful thing about a movie like this. You can interpret it in a whole host of ways. And I don't think as long as you're putting thought into it and some nuance behind it, I'm going to support all the interpretations out there. Well, what sealed the deal for me is that because everything else can be explained by something else. And even this can be explained, but I, 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 the scene was so powerful. But when Black Phillip was actually the one who killed dad, 
that may that that told me you're supposed to take this stuff literal because you know even even the mutilated sheep and the and the dead twins that could have been Thomason on a on a rager, uh, you know. Uh, also, mom with you know you know that that could have been her fever dream, but I don't know the raven you know pecking at you know e- eating her breast uh, when she thought she was you know uh, uh, breastfeeding her long gone infant, but. It was it was the murder it was the murder by Black Philip who was the you know the, the devil occupied the, the black ram or what do you call a male goat I don't know we'll just say ram um, it's probably wrong uh, I thought that was it and then I I thought it was just beautifully delicious how you know you took a body you never quite saw him but you could tell it was someone who'd be like an an, an evil doer in the Three Musketeers movies or something like that. Um, you know, all dressed in black, sort of in the shadows, spoke quietly. He gave her time to decide and eat the butter and eat and live deliciously. Uh, oh, it's so it's so good. And I've looked up what that actor actually looks like, and he totally looks like what you would think. He's like devilishly handsome, if you will. Um, but that's a wonderful segue into some of the research that I brought into this, because I kind of wanted to go in a direction Uh, for analysis that we haven't really done before. Uh, And I wanted to look into some of the origins of Black Phillip, and I specifically wanted to learn more about Baphomet. So Mm. would you both uh, permit me to talk a little bit about Baphomet? The mic is yours. Yeah, do it. Awesome. So Baphomet, you know him, you love him. He's the sabbatic goat. Statues of him tend to show up when the satanic temple gets involved in church versus state legal arguments. But the name Baphomet goes back a really, really long way and comes on a sort of twisted journey to become what we know and recognize today. Uh, The name or the word Baphomet first appears in connection with the first crusade in the 11th century uh, as supposedly a deity of Antioch during the siege of Antioch. Most scholars today agree that Baphomet is actually an old French corruption of Mahomet or Muhammad. then we fast forward a little bit later to allegations in the 14th century against friends of the pod, the Knights Templar, uh, that they are worshiping an idol or a deity called Baphomet. Uh, the name appears in some transcripts of heresy trials against the Knights Templar that are brought by King Philip IV of France, probably no relation to Black Philip, but who knows. Um, But those allegations of worshiping this Baphomet figure also appear alongside like a hundred other trumped up charges against the order of homosexuality, infanticide, uh, you name it, they were accused of it. They had really gotten on the wrong side of the king and that's not where you want to be and things did not end well for the Knights Templar. But if we accept that Baphomet is Muhammad, which scholars do, then what's really happening is that the Templars are being accused of being Muslims, right? They're accused of worshiping Muhammad in a perverse way or incorporating Islamic ideas into their expression of Christianity because they had been in such close proximity for so long. And kind of the worst thing you could accuse this Christian order of is Islam. But it's relatively recent that Baphomet actually becomes associated with the goat, with the occult, and with the devil. There are some loose connections in those heresy trials between devil worship and the worship of this Baphomet idol, but Baphomet looks nothing like we recognize him as today. 
Uh, so I'm going to skip forward many, many centuries to the 19th century, to 1818. And I should say, I'm going to grossly skip over a lot of the complexities here because there's just not enough time and there's so much. But uh, I highly recommend looking into some of this yourself as well. So 1818, uh, we have the Orientalist writer Joseph von Hammer Pergstahl, who writes a pseudo history, a pseudo historical essay titled Discovery of the Mystery of Baphomet, by which the Knights Templars, like the Gnostics and Ophites, are convicted of apostasy, of idolatry, and of moral impurity by their own monuments. It's a mouthful, uh, but in this essay, he uses a ton of faked archaeological evidence and flawed arguments to say that this uh, Baphomet figure exists, and it's this ancient deity that was worshipped by, um, by the Templars. And there are some illustrations that come up with this essay. Those still don't look like what we see today in Baphomet. That comes a little bit later in the century with the esotericist Eliphas Levi, who writes Dogma and Rituals of High Magic. And in this text, in this two-book uh, uh, series, he includes the illustration of Baphomet, uh, that's also called the Sabbatic Goat or the Goat of Mendez. That is the Baphomet you know. It is a throned, winged, humanoid goat that has the gesture of one arm up, one arm down, a pentagram at the forehead, and a candle between the horns. It's very similar to the image of the devil card that's depicted in the medieval tarot deck. Um, and Levi's Baphomet, you know, touching back on something we talked about in our Greek mythology uh, episode on Garden of Doom, Baphomet also has Hermes or Mercury's staff, the caduceus with the, the two serpents uh, in place of a phallus. So there's this connection between uh, the long alchemically associated Mercury or Hermes and Baphomet and the devil. Really cool, really interesting connections that happen with this illustration. Now, as we're making these connections, as Levi is calling this sabbatic goat illustration Baphomet, he is also um, referring back to uh, something known as the witch's Sabbath, which has origins in medieval records on witchcraft. The lore supposes that the witches convened with the devil in the form of a goat who has a candle or a torch between his horns in this ritual, the witch's Sabbath. Levi in this text suggests that the witch's Sabbath is actually a holdover from ancient pagan rites, possibly connected with the god Pan or similar deities, which would explain the relationship to the goat. Now, next century, the Levi Baphomet is picked up by a little Alistair Crowley, uh, and he incorporates it into Thelema. And then Anton LaVey comes along and incorporates Baphomet into the Church of Satan. The rest is kind of history. Now today, in not the Church of Satan, but the Satanic Temple, who are the coolest cats in the world, uh, Baphomet is seen as a, uh, a symbol of the unification of opposing forces, right? So this illustration contains male and female, human and animal, good and evil, light and dark, above and below. Baphomet becomes a symbol of balance 
and of life affirmation and unity, unification of these opposing forces. So it's a long, long journey to get here, but the contemporary version of Baphomet is life affirming, is one who would live deliciously and encourage you to live deliciously. Uh, there are these loose associations with actually being the devil, like Baphomet isn't the devil. Baphomet is sometimes adjacent to Satan or Satanism, but it's all very, very nebulous. And so I wanted to kind of dig into the goat and why those connections are made, uh, but really also lift up the kind of interesting long journey it takes to become the Baphomet of today, which is in many ways a celebration of fluidity and a celebration of things not always being as they seem, a symbol of balance. Very interesting point. Thank you for doing all of that research. You know, I know that I know a little bit about the Church of Satan, and I know that it is heavily based on the writings of Frederick Nietzsche, including Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which always seems to pop up time and time again, and this podcast that we talk about Nietzsche. And I know one of Thus Spoke Zarathustra's central message, it's been a long time since I've read it, so any Nietzschean scholars out there want to correct me, I do welcome it is the idea of amor fate, so loving your fate, understanding that the only way to live unnihilistically in a nihilistic universe is to live through art, is to express yourself not morally the way we see William in this movie try to do it, the way the Puritans do it. Everything comes down to a matter of right and wrong. It's either morally in line with God or it's amorally in line with Satan, well, Nietzsche, and I think Satanism, as it sprungs out of it, would say that that line, that distinction, is itself inherently nihilistic and problematic. Really try to live deliciously, try to live beautifully, love your fate and express yourself, and don't necessarily worry about these arbitrary distinct distinctions between what is right and what is wrong. I think you do kind of, if we think of Thomason as a hero, in this is learning to live those lessons in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. I have to give just a little bit of credit here because I did a lot of this research through reading articles and excerpts, but what really put a lot of it into great perspective for me was a podcast called Black Mass Appeal, which is produced by Satanic Bay Area. They're uh, a wing of the Satanic Temple in California. And I thought, I think they're wonderful, leftist, powerful, powerful people and I, uh, I love the satanic temple, <laughs> but I, I just, I recommend that podcast and I'll put them in the show notes as well. If I may, I have a couple of things and I didn't know you were going to go in this direction. So, uh, I, I may not research things, but I do learn. Um, so first a couple of, uh, plugs for prior episodes of Garna Doom. One is the church of Satan without Satan. Uh, that is with Bobby Blades. Uh, who, you know, explored left hand, uh, you know, and, and may or may not have been in one of those churches at some time. Also, I had Luke Michael Ironside on the show called Theosophical Underpinnings of Lucifer. The nice. Both of these issues. So check out those shows. They're really good. They're both great. Luke is brilliant. You would love him. Um, he's 27 and I feel like he must be a vampire because it's like he's 2700 years old. And like, where, whatever I talk about, he's like, yeah, I live there. I live there. I'm like, how? How? A anyway, uh, a couple of things on what you were talking about. One, Black Philip. Philip, who's Philip? Well, 
Philip was one of the most pious French kings who was notoriously always broke because he was always willing to go into debt to fund the, the, the king's wars. I mean, the Pope's wars. So he's very Catholic. He's also the king that turned on the Templars in what most people agree in a very simplistic way was a money grab. Um, so this ties into exactly what you're saying. So I don't think Black Philip was at all uh, an accident in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. Also on Baphomet, and, and you're correct, he was a, a deity of Antioch. Well, this is a question. Where Where is Antioch? Or where was Antioch? The quote-unquote holy land. Right. So Antioch yeah. is like sort of in modern-day Syria. Right. Um, and But back then, it was Canaan. So Baphomet actually goes older than than even there. Baphomet is tied as well to Ba or Ba'el, the Canaanite god, which is fertility and lots of other things, but often tied to non-good, non-Israelite, non-Judean, non-Egyptian, sort of uh, almost like the bad pagans around all the other pagans or other people adjacent that, that were bad. The Assyrians were, were notoriously uh, vicious and effective army. But Baal is also the same uh, name as Belial. And Belial in the Book of Enoch is one of the seven archangel lieutenants um, that, that revolted against God. So fallen archangels. So Belial and also Beelzebub, one of the princes of hell is the same character, all associated with the goat, which explains, and he stands at the side of the devil, whether you believe the name is Lucifer or Satan, whatever, that's not really entirely clear in the, in these early scriptures, but he stands on the side of him, um, which is the left-hand side versus the right-hand side where, you know, Christ stood with God, but also, you know, uh, the archangel Michael, who is, uh, you know, first Lucifer stood there uh, and then got cast out. So, these things are all tied together, but the the goat and sort of anti civilization, you know, anti progress has has always been a thing. And I don't know if a goat is a particularly virile or fertile animal, like the rabbit or the turtle is in certain uh, Eastern uh, cultures or, or whatever. But um, whatever it is, the the goats and especially a black goat has sort of always gotten a uh, bad rap, or, or maybe they're just evil. I don't know. Oh, and they got the craziest eyes and they can scream like humans. I'm also just going to say, because you <laughs> mentioned you brought up angels and you brought up the book of Enoch, the uh, chant, the the coven as they're dancing around the fire in the very last shots of the film. The chant that they're doing is in a form of Enochian uh, language, like they're doing an Enochian style chant. So uh, I yeah. just love the connections. That was awesome. Well, well it, it goes to show you when an idea takes root within a civilization, and it then spreads, it can have a long and unpredictable lifespan. So the fact that we were going back to the ancient Israelites and the idea of trying to repel this Assyrian god that they associated with badness, bad fertility, et cetera, and linked it to goats can draw a, albeit a zigzaggy, but still a line to a character in a horror movie today, that is like vintage midnight myth stuff we yeah, love. Yeah, for sure. Because those connections are there. They're loose and there's a lot 
and it's very complex and you can't prove it in the way that you can prove the earth is round. But at the same time, you can't ignore that those connections exist. And to me, I always go back to once you put something out there into the world and it takes hold and it takes root, it will then grow and can change in so many different ways. A good story truly never dies. It never disappears. It just evolves and adapts and our relationship to it changes. And now we have a revision of a Canaanite Assyrian deity living in satanic temples and used as a symbol to kind of go against religious authority and against puritanical beliefs. In the main way, I think this, this movie is saying if we if we represent that there are human actions that cause results, that this is not all a supernatural story, this isn't all Satan working his hands, but the people themselves are the main drivers of action. It is their puritanism that drives them to this point. It is their puritanism that creates the self-fulfilling prophecy that makes her Thomason the witch. It is the puritanism that is the tragedy of this family and why it eats itself both symbolically and sometimes literally alive. That's awesome. I'm going to uh, just put a little pin in this conversation with uh, a fun little production fact, which is uh, that A24, they, they fund this film. It's got no stars. It's got you know actors you might have seen in small parts in Game of Thrones. And Anya Taylor-Joy is nowhere near the career heights that she has. So they have to get creative with marketing. And so they pursue an endorsement from the Satanic Temple, which they get. So this film is endorsed by the Satanic Temple, um, which the director was not super on board with. But moving on further in his career, as he goes and shoots like the Lighthouse and the Northmen in other countries, this ended up being a big thorn in his side that he had to like jump through all these hoops to convince people that he was not a Satanist um, so that they would allow him to shoot movies in their country. That is funny. That yeah. is absolutely funny. I want to, because we're we're getting close to time and listeners, so you know, our son Arthur is napping and this is either the time that he will wake up or he'll sleep for another two hours. It's one we or the are, other. We are on borrowed time either way. <laughs> so I want to quickly just discuss what a witch is very much in the uh, construct and legal identity of a witch in medieval Western Europe and then into the modern era. And real briefly, what a witch is and why witches became to be persecuted was the confluence of two different things someone could be in Western Europe. The first is a magician, so a practitioner of magic, and the second is a heretic, someone who believes in the sanctity of, at first, the Catholic Church, but chooses to go against their rulings or doctrines. And how it is, is people have always believed up until the Enlightenment that magicians are real, that there are people that can practice magic and that they can practice magic for ill or they could practice magic for good. Medieval people were the same. They believed that there are good magicians and bad magicians. You might go to a magician if you're sick because you think the magician might cure you. You might go to a magician who is thought to be able to see the future because you're going to go on a new venture and you want to know if you'll come back alive. Or there could be evil magic where you might go to a magician to curse your enemy or maybe poison their crops. So there is this belief in magic in Western European world, and there is a distinction between good and bad. Good magic was allowed, bad magic was considered illegal. 
Similarly, the Catholic Church had heretics, people that were going against the will of the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church would work. It would produce a bull, which is a papal law, and this would be considered from God to the Pope, and everyone would have to follow it. Thing is, is the medieval world's pretty diverse. Not everyone agreed. So if someone disagreed with the Pope, they would then be guilty of heresy. So the Catholic Church created an institution to find and root out heretics, and they are called the Inquisitors. So Inquisitors' job was to go out there, find the people that were heretics, and purge them. The Inquisitors had the ability to imprison people indefinitely. They had the ability to torture people, but they could not kill people. If they were someone was found to be an unrepentant heretic, they'd have to be referred to civil authorities with a recommendation of a death sentence. And the Inquisitors were increasingly gaining power. At the same time, this is round about the 12 to 1300s, there is discussion that there is no good magic. All practitioners of magic are bad. Everyone who claims, even if they want to use it for good, who claims to have magical powers or to be a magician, is channeling demonic forces. Hence, they would become heretics. So the Inquisitors now get magic and the persecution of magicians under their purview. And as they are torturing suspected magicians and asking them the similar questions they ask heretics, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Pope? Do you believe in the devil? Have you talked to the devil? Does the devil talk to you? They start finding that the magicians are also now heretics, which granted, this is under torture. People will say anything if you torture them long enough. So now comes this new construct, one part magician, one part heretic, you got the witch. Now, witch trials were still extraordinarily rare till about the 1450s, they started picking up steam. And from 1450s to the 1750s is when you have what you call the witch hysteria, the mass witch trials. Americans think that Salem was really bad. We killed about 20 so witches thousands of witches were killed in Europe. Predominantly, this is women. Now, a lot of people aren't necessarily sure why exactly, but there are a few theories. One, one of the common charges against a witch is that she would eat children to gain their vitalization, something we see articulated in this movie as the witches steal the baby so that they can use it to create a flying ointment. Well, who helps deliver the most babies? midwives who are midwives they are women so if you are a woman who's maybe lost a few children from a midwife you might start to suspect that the midwife is a witch who else might you suspect as a witch maybe there is a widow who is poor who's going around and saying hey can you give me some food can you give me some money can you help me out can you do your christian duty eventually you start thinking well this is a drain on society and you trip and fall and break your leg, well, that must be because the old woman over there cursed me. She must be a witch. The crudgel to use the inquisitors and then the state to snuff out witches fell disproportionately on those with the least amount of actual status and power, poor women. And because of that, you get the construct of a witch. The Puritans, as they move from England to uh, the New World, fun fact, Puritanism was actually an insult. We've talked a lot about constructs and how Thomason has to adopt the mantle of witch and wears it as a badge of honor. Well, ironically, 
when the Puritans first started making headway, it, this was in medieval England, it were the followers of the Church of England that called them Puritans as an insult. Look at you Puritans thinking you're so pure. You know, we don't like you at all. Get out of our country. And they eventually adopt the moniker and use it as a point of pride. Yes, we are the Puritans. So the Puritans that go into New England, they carry with it the tradition that there is a combination of you know, magic use and heresy. They are called witches. They're almost always women. And that when you find them, you have to snuff them out. One of the most um, horrible charges and why institutionally witch persecutions got so big was unlike magicians who were believed to operate alone, heretics always have a group. There's not just one heretic, there's multiple. That's how it spreads. Well, if witches are heretics, there must be a network of heretics. There must be a covenant of witches. So there can never be just a witch. So this is why when persecuting witches, one of the things that you had to do to save your life was what? Name other witches. Because if you confessed to witchcraft and you repented, you would likely save your life if you named the other witches in the covenant. And hence, institutionally, it then be, starts to grow. So you got one witch, now you got two, now you got three, now you got thousands. Which is why the crucible is such a potent metaphor for McCarthyism and Red Scare, uh, because it's the same thing that, quote unquote, heretics come with a group. So people point fingers. And consider this point. I think when we meditate on witchcraft and witch trials in that era, I think we do ourselves a disservice to put it far in the past. I think we do ourselves a disservice to consider it medieval because that 300-year era where we persecuted witches, we Western civilization people, we are closer chronologically to that era than we are to the true Dark Ages, which is the fall of the Roman Empire. That would be roughly dated in the 6th century BCE. I'm sorry, 6th century AD, pardon me. So we have to look at, in part, witchcraft as part of a tradition that we do carry on today. Yeah, it's a tradition of the modern world. And hence, we have things like McCarthyism that have existed, which Arthur C. Miller? Arthur, no, Arthur, Arthur C. Miller. Yeah. Arthur Miller. I confuse that with Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Who wrote the Crucible? That would be a wonderful, like, bionic Frankenstein. Well, Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2001. Yes. Yeah, I would Nathaniel love Hawthorne to see who wrote the Crucible. No, Arthur Miller wrote the Crucible, and Nathan- Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter. Scarlet Letter, right, right, right. Yeah, we're all confused. We're well, 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 the men are confused. Yes, <laughs> Laurel has it. You and I don't know what we're talking well, about. That's entirely appropriate with the theme of this show. But I want to. I want to. I, I mean, you know, I, I you made your politics very clear at the beginning, so I feel very safe in saying this. It's happening right now. Well, yeah. What's at the root of QAnon? that there's a certain group feeding on babies in a pizza joint in Georgetown, but, you know, presumably that's a network. But where, where are all these missing babies? Where, where are all the parents filing missing children reports? I mean, but, uh, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this is still used to demonize your opponents by a puritanical wing, need, whatever, in, in a certain part of the population. But I didn't mean to get political at all, because actually I, I'm not nearly as, as lefty as that statement might have just seemed. Um, but I want to touch on a couple of things. One, this movie, you really do have to pay attention. I loved how, how Derek phrased in the beginning, but one of the things that forces you to do it is the almost utter lack of color in this movie. There's 
there's everything is like a shade of gray. There's black, there's sort of off-white, and then there's gray. Even the will, even the green isn't is drab green. The sky is always gray and dreary. The, the only time where there's any color is the witch's cape is red and sometimes, and only sometimes, blood. And that is the deliciousness, the succulent part of life. So the only part of the life is, is, in, is in the death, so to speak, or the life elixir, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, so I thought the use or of, of color or the lack thereof was very important. I mean, even right down to the fact that William was must presumably stripped of his black Puritan garb and, and forced to go out in sort of gray off-white. The other thing is, I've come to a conclusion. One, I think it's absolutely literal, but one of the things that William said when he was trying to console Catherine was, God has never taken a child from us. They, they were five for five. And as you were talking about the midwife stuff, you know, one of the things is that, I mean, like four out of five kids and or mothers died in childbirth. I think that part of William's pride was that he was always praying to the wrong God. Uh, he made his covenant to never lose a child. He And that what what made him so upright and super pious to get himself out of there. And I think that deal he made bound him to this. And from there, it was just like laying bed, breadcrumbs where the the evil or not evil, you know, the, the, the earth rebelling against the new world, the, the modernity, Who, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, was Ultron right, you know? Um, right, right. You know, but, but that led them and drew them, you know, inextricably, like, as they would say in, a, in all the uh, Uhtred of Bebenberg movies, fate is inexorable, uh, you know, the Norsemen, you, you, the Northmen, you would have seen the same kind of thing, you can't escape fate. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that he did something that we never saw to, to make it so that they were five for five and the, that because he prayed so strong, maybe to the wrong deity, it, it, it cursed them uh, and led them on this path, uh, benefited Thomason, but, you know, arguably no one else. I like that theory. I think that's interesting. You know, it reminds me of Abraham who had yeah. to be willing to sacrifice his child to God to prove his faith to God. And here we have character, a character who was not willing to sacrifice his ch children. And from that ends up losing all of them. Yeah. Well, we are pretty much pulling up on time. So before we do that, I want to give everyone a chance for some final thoughts and um, what Jeff, before we do any final thoughts, tell the folks out there, how can they find you? How can they reach you? Do all your plugs, my friend. Okay, great. Thank you very much. First of all, thank you. This is, this is wonderful. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, you can find me at Twitter at Icarus Fell MD. Uh, uh, Icarus like Daedalus and Icarus. Um, the show is Garden of Doom. You can find it really anywhere, Apple, Spotify, Spreaker, Podbean, SoundCloud, whatever. And if you subscribe, you'll get Garden of Doom and Garden Views. If you're a pro wrestling fan, I'm all over that too. If you go to the Wrestling Soup Network and subscribe to, uh, you can also subscribe to Hammerlock Hangover. That's a wrestling podcast I do with my partner. And then I'm on several others on the PWC and the Humming Media Group and Channel Attitude and things like that. Um, 
but Wrestling Soup Network is kind enough to let me have these completely non-wrestling podcasts garnering the Doom and Garden views there as well. So thanks to all of those. But if, if that's where you find me, that, that's where you find me. You'll find me on this episode of, of Midnight Myth. So excited for it to drop. And I was recently on Living Extraordinary with Nikki Anna Jones on YouTube. So if you want to see me, uh, you, you can see me there on, uh, you can just uh, search Nikki Anna Jones and it's the most recent episode that came out. 20 hours ago. So I guess that would be uh, June 24th, 2022. Wonderful. Any final thoughts about The Witch? I think I I gave my final thoughts before. I think I've spoken plenty. Wonderful. Final thoughts there, Laurel? Yeah, I have a final thought, which is I did make some overtures that this is a feminist film, and I I do think it is in many ways. Uh, But I, I have to point out that there is a complication to that, which is that Thomason stepping into her uh, magical power into her witchhood uh, is still bound and is still borrowing that power from a patriarchal figure in Black Philip, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call it. Um, so this uh, this theory, this lore that supposes that witches gain their power through uh, signing a devil's book or through relations with a devil or a demon uh, is in itself a way of saying that women don't actually possess this power and that this power is borrowed from a man. Uh, and that's not true because we are coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) We're pissed off. And I guess with that until next time, folks be kind live deliciously. 